Hi, and welcome to Human Leadership, a podcast full of science-backed and practical knowledge and insight designed to help anyone who leads people unleash the human talent we need for the next era of work. I'm Suzanne Jacobs, an organisational behaviour and performance expert who's worked as part of senior leadership teams for over 30 years and conducted more than a decade of research into the neurobiological drivers of intrinsic motivation and trust. In each episode of Human Leadership, I'm going to take you through what you'll need to make your workplace human fit. And to help me along the way, I roped in my sister Chloe, a brilliant educationalist who also knows just a thing or two about leadership. And together, we'll guide you through everything you need to know to become a better human leader. In this episode, we'll be discussing the power of the positive. What optimism, luck and positivity have to do with our health and performance and how to cultivate and strengthen our resilience through the positive. Hi Chloe, how are you? Really well, thank you. We went to Julo in Cornwall this weekend and had a great time. It's just lovely to get away sometimes and recharge those batteries. I know. Well, you do also live on holiday as well, as you keep reminding me. So, uh, yeah, no, good for you. Yeah, one holiday to the next. Lovely. (laughs) So, from my time in uh, Julian, I'm definitely feeling a lot more positive because I've recharged those batteries. But we do hear a lot about being positive, but I'm just not sure I'm all right with that. I'm not always positive and sometimes it's actually hard to put on a smile. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important message. I think we have to get across that we are not, as as creatures, we are not designed to be, you know, these positive, happy beings all the time. We're, We're actually designed to respond to our environment so we keep safe. And, and how we think and how we feel are influenced by what our brain is interpreting about what's happening around us. So the simple premise here really around our survival is that we are, our brain's always interpreting what's going on. Are we safe? Are we not? And it then motivates us to move towards the things that are good from us and away from danger. Pretty straightforward in terms of that premise. And, and how we think feel and and therefore behave is it's so materially different when we perceive when our brain perceives we are safe versus facing some sort of danger or threat and that includes both physically and psychologically and and I think we have to also remember you know how positive or energized we feel is also subject to how well we feel how tired we are, how hungry we are. You know, all these things play a part. So for me to normalise that we are meant to experience a tapestry of emotion, to understand that our mood shifts is a vital element for our own resilience. You know, it's the, it's the good old human condition and, and you and I, you know, we've spoken on these podcasts uh, before how, how all emotions play a part. They are crucial signals. It's your brain sending messages from our emotional anatomy as it interprets our world. 
And, and those negative emotions that we feel, or as we describe them as, as negative, they don't feel good because they're designed to get us to do something, to get us to get away from danger. And if we didn't feel these, we'd run the risk of missing, well, we'd run the risk of missing stuff that's really harmful. And, you know, of course, it's great to feel positive, to experience those feel-good sensations and emotions. It's energising, it's motivating. But equally, sometimes, you know, you sort of have to feel angry, irritated, fed up, because events around us have moved for us. We need to respond appropriately. And that's what emotional literacy is, really. It's that self-awareness, to be aware of our mood and to be able to strengthen through that knowledge the gap between noticing how we feel and how we choose to respond. Yeah, no, I, I understand. It's, um, but it's, is positivity the, the same as optimism? Yeah, so what I was mainly speaking about just then was was like this transience of mood state rather than an overall way of interpreting or looking at the world. So positivity and optimism, of course, they're absolutely linked. But the first is an emotional response, whereas optimism is a cognitive trait. So it's a thinking style, um, a bit more of a a permeance, permeance to it. It's the way we see the world and it's the it's that lens through which our brain interprets situations and events and things that are going on around us. And this is really important because how you see the world, how you interpret it, how you perceive it has a direct link on your quality of life. And do you know what? Even the length of your life and the father of learned optimism and one of the most influential figures in uh, the realm and the field of positive psychology is Martin Seligman. And I'm going to turn to him in terms of defining optimism. He says it is a tendency to expect the best outcome or dwell on the most hopeful aspects of a situation. So it's that, it's that things will turn out okay, peace. Now, I find that actually really interesting being a teacher because you just said learned optimism. Why learned? Yeah, well, really good, good spot. So our neural circuitry circuitry changes. So for very good reasons, uh, it allows us to adapt to new surroundings. And that adaption is the same for how we perceive the world around us, how we think. So, yeah, we can learn optimism we can learn resilience. We can we can shift our perception of the world because we can change the narrative. We can change the explanation of the events that we're telling ourselves. Strengthening our capacity for realistic optimism is, is so highly protective. And the more we practice looking through an optimistic frame, the more we reinforce that positive neural circuitry and and by doing so you know we strengthen it's a bit like strengthening a muscle really the more we can tap into those positive feelings that we we want to be able to access I love this that this is just brilliant but I am assuming because you said realistic optimism 
that there is an unrealistic version? Yeah, no, it's a good it's a good shout because we've got to be really careful about what optimism really is. It, optimism or realistic optimism is it's not about the the rose tinted glasses or the the Pollyanna view of the world that all things are always rosy and and wonderful. You know, stuff happens around us. Realistic optimism is it's a it's an attitude. It's a solution focused attitude with a sprinkle of pragmatism into the mix. It's it's not about not getting upset when things don't go as planned, or it's not about not worrying when we're facing a you know a challenge ahead of us. But realistic optimism is is about acknowledging the normal emotions we all face in tough times. It's about moving to a position of acceptance when perhaps things have, have gone awry. And then it moves to a solution orientation so we can start to look and find the answer, the way out. And of course, linked to all of that is how we experience and how we take ourselves through the uh, situation gives us scope for learning and, and, and the opportunity for growth as well. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. But uh, I have to ask the question, what about good old pessimism? Oh, I think there's room for pessimism. But again, we've got to be really careful, you know, a little bit like defining realistic optimism and putting the caveat around that. We've also got to bring in pessimism and, and explain where there's room for it and why. So there is room for what's sometimes called strategic or defensive pessimism, which is, so this is a little bit more like risk assessment um, or contingency planning. It, but it's not um, the perpetual Eeyore perception that the world is just a gloomy place. And, and I think just going back to mood state that we were just chatting about right at the very beginning, on some days, sometimes we will not be feeling on top of a game. You know, the good old got out the bed the wrong side days. So we will tend to be more pessimistic. But tomorrow, you may look at the same situation and you'll see it completely differently. And I think I think finally on that point is that optimists also tend to explain why things happened really differently to pessimists. It's something that's called attribution or explanatory style. So optimists will tend to see setbacks as sort of one-offs, temporary, uh, specific to the moment, incidents that don't define them rather than things that perhaps always happen to them and, and can't be changed. They also have control over working things out and they, they look to the future as something that's in their influence and this links back to um, J.P. Rota and his work around locus of control. So let me just um, bring that to life. Let's just say I lost my keys. There you go. I lost my car keys. It's annoying. Of course, it's really annoying. And yeah, and you know me, I will probably say a few choice words. But I can choose to see that I don't, I don't always lose my car keys. It, it is a one-off. There were things that were specific to that particular situation and they don't define me. I'm not a failure because I lost my keys. I just lost my keys. 
So once I've got over the, uh, the initial irritation, I can start to seek the solution. I can start to think, okay, I can, I can perhaps I can call home. I could ask them to find the spare key, call them out, come and get me. You know, all of these things, there are solutions, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, it doesn't define me. And I have moved myself from the problem into the solution. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, so are optimists more actually successful then? So that's a really interesting question. Um, and I'll refer to the studies that are out there, actually. So studies such as the one carried out by University of Pennsylvania show that optimists are they're better at avoiding harmful behaviours such as um, smoking. They tend to make more healthy choices. They have better mental health. They seek help quicker if they're concerned about their health as well. Uh, they take up they definitely take up more opportunities and they're, they're better at overcoming adversity. And because of those things, they often have higher incomes. And because they have a greater inclination towards hope um, and they, they tend to expect the best uh, outcomes, they're more likely to, to achieve because they try more. It, it's sort of that that's the link, really. And they also have they place less limits on themselves as well so one of my in fact one of my favorite psychologists Richard Wiseman actually and and one of um, my favorite studies that he ran uh, looks at looks at this actually Uh, now he ran he set up and ran something called the luck school where and those that went through the luck school almost all participants reported significant life changes which included increased levels of luck, self-esteem, confidence, and success. Um, and what he showed was that we are, we are to a, such a large extent the guardians of our own good and bad fortune. And I want to quote him here because he sums up his findings as lucky people generate their own good fortune via four basic principles. They are skilled at creating and noticing chance opportunities, make lucky decisions by listening to their intuition, create self-fulfilling prophecies via positive expectations, and they adopt a resilient attitude that transforms bad luck into good. So taking the case of the chance opportunities, one of the experiments he ran um, around showing how lucky people consistently encounter such opportunities that come come their way and of how they see them, whereas unlucky people tend to, to miss them. He carried out a really simple experiment to discover whether this was due to differences in you know, their ability to spot such opportunities. He gave both the lucky and the unlucky people a newspaper and he asked them to look through it and to tell him how many photographs were inside. Pretty straightforward. On average, the unlucky people took took around two minutes to count the photographs, whereas the lucky people just took seconds. So you have to ask yourself, well, why? But it's because on the second page of the newspaper, there was a message, and it said, stop counting. There are 43 photographs in this newspaper. 
Now, this wasn't a small message. This wasn't hidden in a corner. This message took up half the page and was written in type that was over two inches high. It was literally staring everyone straight in the face. But the unlucky people who were so focused on counting, they they missed it. They tended to miss it, pass them by. So he then added an extra bit to it. So, and he says it was just for fun, but he placed a second large message halfway through the newspaper. And this one announced, stop counting, tell the experimenters you have seen this and win $250. Again, the unlucky people missed the opportunity because they were still so focused on the task in hand, they let these things pass them by. And if we take this a little further, the personality tests that um, revealed that the unlucky people, they were generally more tense, they were more anxious than the lucky people. And we know through research that anxiety disrupts people's ability to notice the unexpected, to notice the opportunities. For me, this links so closely to an optimistic trait that we were speaking about that strengthens positivity, reduces anxiety, builds self-esteem and confidence and allows us to open, to be more open, to literally see more and see more of what is possible. And it supports for me, you know, the scientific or the rational explanation as to what and why we can achieve more rather than what can sometimes feel a little bit like um, the intangible magic of luck. And of course, the more we see and the more confidence we have, the more we expect things to turn out okay, the more we grab the opportunity, the more success that comes our way. So how do I strengthen my optimism and my positive circuits? Oh, well, learned optimism, positive neural circuitry. Yes, there are absolutely things we can do. Um, And evidence-based supported tools and techniques we can employ to strengthen our, those sort of, those positive neural muscles I referred to. Um, so I'm going to turn back to Martin Seligman again. Um, his research, a lot of his research concluded that happiness has three dimensions. So if we took happiness as sort of a proxy, if you like, for, for, for positivity and all the wonderful things that it contains. And those three dimensions for, that he describes are the pleasant life, the good life and the meaningful life. So I'll, I'll explain those because I think they're really important. So the pleasant life is realised if we learn to savour and appreciate such basic pleasures such as, you know, friendship, companionship, the our outside, the natural environment, um, our, our bodily needs. Now, in a good life, this one's achieved through discovering uh, our unique virtues and strengths and making sure that we use them to creatively build things that enhance our lives and then the third one which is the meaningful life now this is where we find a deep sense of fulfillment by employing our those unique strengths for a purpose greater than ourselves so I took a technique which I have employed for many many years simply called three good things So the exercise itself is 
every night, set aside just 10 minutes, only 10 minutes, say after dinner and before you go to bed and write down three good things, three good things that happened that day, three things that you're thankful for, three things that you noticed that were positive, the things that made you smile, gave you a sense of, sense of warmth, connection. And next to those positive events, answer the question, so why did it happen? Why did those positive things happen? And I think it's really important to explain that these things, they can be the smallest things. They can be a smile from a stranger, uh, a great cup of coffee, the sun shining. So, and you'll know, this is an exercise I've run with, with my two since they were really tiny. They're not so tiny anymore. And I extended it to thinking that while we're recording this, Christmas is actually just around the corner. Um, we have a, a gratitude tree and it's one that we, we, we made and it's got 24 hooks on it. And on those 24 days leading up to Christmas, we just write on a, a little luggage label, something that we're thankful for, something that we're grateful for, something that's made us smile during the day. To, and we, we just hang it up and we share it with each other and we hang it up on the tree. So it builds over those 24 days. You know, three good things, three positives. This is, it's so simple, but it is so incredibly powerful. And it's exercising that neural positive circuitry muscle all the time, every day. And what it also does is it allows us to take in what's around us, literally absorb it to see it we can I, I call them freeze freeze frame moments um, and the our ability to be able to savor those moments as well and, and when we look back on our day and we experience the the good stuff and we look back even on those tiny things we we experience those emotions again you know when you bring back a happy memory you experience it a little bit like um opening the photograph album, looking at the pictures on your phone. It literally takes us back to the smiles captured in the memories. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Human Leadership. And if you have time, leave us a review or give us a rating on your podcast app. For more information, go to the 7 dot org dot uk